Titus chapter 1, please. Titus chapter 1, and while you're turning there, I'll give you an update. Uh, just got a new update from uh, Brother uh, uh, Tony and Sister Brittany. Uh, we have uh, 190 tracks and, uh, and uh, gospel shares this week, and that brings us to 2,081 for the year. Uh, also like to ask you all to pray uh, as we uh, go through the printing process in Nigeria with uh, Brother Wisdom to get them for the first time printed. We've had the booklet translated in the Igbo language for quite some time. This is the first time to actually have it on the printed page. And so um, uh, we're going through a process with that. We'll probably have to do some formatting here on the U.S. side, send it to them, and then have the hard copies made on the Nigerian side. But if you all be in prayer for that project, I would appreciate it. Book of Titus, chapter 1. We're beginning a study in a brand new book this morning. For the past few months, we've been studying the book of Jude. And in that book, we had some heavy doctrine, didn't we? And Jude warned us about false teachers that were placed in the church by the devil. But now in the book of Titus, if God permits... We're going to learn about the true teachers that God has placed in the church by His Son, Jesus Christ. We need to understand this morning that everything we are and everything we have in Jesus Christ is a direct result of God's teaching ministry. Direct result. We cannot be saved apart from divine teaching. We cannot be comforted apart from divine teaching. We can't grow as Christians apart from divine teaching. We can't live victoriously and joyfully apart from divine teaching. And that is why the devil attacks God's teaching ministry by introducing those counterfeit teachers into the church. That's also why the devil attacks Christians by distracting them. This is what the devil will do. He will distract you with worldly interests to try to keep you from listening to the Bible teaching that you need. Oh, no, I'll just do this over here. Listen, if you can't make it on Wednesday nights, catch up online. Don't let the Bible teaching. I pour my heart into learning this Bible so I can share it with you. Don't let it just run off and, and not catch your ears. Catch it. You, you miss on Sunday morning, catch it online. There's no excuse for not hearing it. And the devil will... will distract you so you won't get to hear the teaching you so desperately need. This is also why the devil attacks genuine Christian teachers. By tempting them, discouraging them, assaulting their minds, and hoping to hinder their work in the ministry. The Apostle Paul knew all about the devil's attacks. The devil had launched many personal attacks against Paul, this precious man of God. He, he assaulted Paul's reputation in the church. 
He assaulted Paul's heart and mind. He assaulted Paul's personal liberty and comfort. Not only that, but Paul was continually having to deal with the counterfeit people, the creepy clergy that had slipped into the church unaware and were troubling the people of God. So when Paul writes to us about God's teaching ministry, he is writing by his own experience as well as God's inspiration. So as we study his greeting in this epistle this morning, we're not simply reading the introduction to a letter, but we're reading a fine example of what it means to be a part of God's genuine teaching ministry. Look with me now, if you would, in verse 1, which says, Paul, a servant of God. Now, the Greek word translated servant here it literally means a bondservant, a slave. Every Christian is a bondservant of God. We're a slave of God. This is especially true for Christian teachers. Paul said he was a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, being an apostle sounds prestigious, doesn't it? We read this morning about Elijah and Elisha taking the mantle and smiting the waters and parting the waters. Man, that would be really neat. If I could take my old tie off here and, you know, part Cedar Creek Lake and it just part for me. I just walk on across. I can't do that. I can't say in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk like the apostles did. Being apostle sounds really prestigious. Being a servant does not. But Paul here is joining the two titles together in this verse. Telling us that he is a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. You see, being a bondservant of God was the foundation of Paul being an apostle of Jesus Christ. Being a bondservant of God is the foundation for being part of God's teaching ministry. In fact, it's the foundation for being a part of any service for the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a privilege it is to be a bondservant of God. In 1 John 3, 1, we, when we were studying through the epistles of John, John told us, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. But we must realize that the same love that made us God's sons also made us God's slaves. That same love. When the Bible calls us sons, it's speaking about our privileges in Christ. When the Bible calls us servants, it's speaking about our responsibilities to Christ. This is the spirit in which Paul is writing this letter. And it's how we should view our service to the Lord Jesus. Like a bondservant in the Old Testament, we're not our own. We've been bought with a price. We are God's slaves. We are in bondage to Him. We are bound to serve Him. And you may think, oh, I don't want to be in bondage. Well, being in bondage can either be a terrible thing or it can be a wonderful thing. All depending on what you're in bondage to, right? In our memory verse this morning, Brother Doug, quoting from Psalm 42 
The psalmist said that God brought us up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set our feet upon a rock and established our going, right? The psalmist was rejoicing because why? He was once in bondage to the deadly pit. His feet, that miry clay, miry means muddy. How many of y'all have ever walked and sunk your boot down into some mud? You know what happens when you try to pull it back up? And your sock comes out and there's your boot down there. That's no fun. Well, so the psalmist is describing this muddy pit that his feet are sunk into and he can't get out of. He can't climb out of. He was in bondage to that miry pit that his feet were trapped in. But God had freed him from that slimy, muddy clay pit and set his feet upon a rock that he could safely stand and walk on. You see, the psalmist was once bound to the pit, but now he was rejoicing because he was bound to the rock. (laughs) Being bound to God, we are bound to everlasting life, mercy, and grace. Being bound as a servant to God, we are bound to everlasting purpose and fulfillment in our lives. I am never more alive Then when I'm up here teaching God's word, never do I ever feel more alive than when I've got my eyes in the scripture and I'm doing what God created me to do. That's when you really live. Whoever is bound to the rock is free from the pit. In 1 Corinthians 7.22, the apostle Paul summed it up well. He said, he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's free man. Likewise also he that is called being free. Is Christ's servant. Man that is poetic isn't it? Absolutely beautiful. As a servant of God I am free from my bondage to sin and death. And I am bound to do God's will. To teach his word and not my own. Paul said he was a servant. Look at back in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So Paul said he was a servant before he said he was an apostle. Because Paul's bondage to God, once again, was the basis of his service to God. He was bound to God, making him free from the miry pit. His bondage was his freedom to live and serve as God created him to. And his apostleship was the position of service that God had placed him in. So Paul said he was a servant of God. Look back in your text now. And an apostle of Jesus Christ. Every servant has their spot to serve in. And for Paul, his spot was apostleship. Now, the word apostle means delegate. Delegate. So an apostle, and as an apostle, Paul was delegated by God. He was delegated to represent someone. That's what a delegate is. If, you know, you vote here locally, and then you hear about the delegates later voting, right? So we vote locally, and then there are, there are people who are then delegated to take our vote And then go represent the local people from back home. And then they vote representing us. Right? They're delegates. 
Paul was a delegate. He was, he was delegated to, re, to go and to speak and to act on another person's behalf. That was Paul's assigned place of service as a bondservant. And the person that he was delegated to represent, he said, was Jesus Christ. He was an apostle, a delegate of Jesus Christ. So think of it this way. When you think of what an apostle is, think of it this way. Through Jesus' spiritual presence, Paul acted in Jesus' physical absence. I'm going to repeat that again. This is how you can understand what an apostle is. Through Jesus' spiritual presence, Paul acted in Jesus' physical presence absence he spoke and acted on jesus behalf doing the will of his master serving jesus church as the holy spirit led him and his ministry to jesus church paul said was look back in your text according to the faith of god's elect that's a mouthful of doctrine paul's delegation to represent christ to the church was according To God's redemptive plan. The world is condemned and broken by sin. The world's a mess. But through God's redemptive plan. He's calling out. And separating. A group of people. Who want to be delivered from their condemnation. And who want the creation to be restored back to the way God intended. On social media the other day, I saw a very good Facebook post. It said, how about we forget Build Back Better and just put things back the way they were? And in in God's redemptive plan, look back to what all has happened after Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden. And we realize... This is a mess. Look what we have done by disobeying our God, our Creator. And we think, you know what? Let's put things back to the way God had them before Adam sinned. That's what God's redemptive plan does. It puts things back to the way God originally designed them. And and that's what Christians are. God's separating this group of people. We want to be delivered from our condemnation. And we want to see creation restored back to the way God made it. This redemptive plan is all laid out for us in the gospel message. And everyone who subscribes to this plan. Trust God to carry out his redemptive work as he's promised in his word. They believe God has Done what he said he's done. And they believe that God will do for them through Jesus Christ. What he said he will do. And because they believe it. Paul says. It's the faith. Make sense? And because all who put their faith. In this redemptive plan. Are the group of people that God's delivering from the world. God uh, uh, calls them his elect. So Paul represented Jesus to the church according to the faith 
of God's elect. And this is not some kind of mysterious and unexplainable faith. It's not some kind of faith that causes us to wonder if we truly have it. It's not some kind of dramatic experience that we go through. It's simply faith. Faith is taking God at His word. As God's elect, we take God at His word concerning what He says Jesus did for us when He came and what Jesus will do for us when He comes again. Simple enough, huh? We know that what God told us about His Son is the truth. So our faith is not some mysterious event. It is simply our acknowledgement that the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. So Paul's ministry, he said, was according to the faith of God's elect, look back in your text, and the acknowledging of the truth. Now these are not two different things. Be like saying, I was terrified and shaking in my boots, or I was terrified and afraid, or I was so happy and excited, or something like that. That's the way the Bible words things many times. So this is not so much accumulative as it is just broadening the description, defining the description uh, further. So the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth. Now I want you to look at that word acknowledging. And if you would take your pens out, if you don't mind marking in your Bible, and with your pens, within that word acknowledging, underscore the letters K, N, O. How about that? Go ahead and underscore L, E, D, G. And that gives us our root word for the word acknowledging. The root word of acknowledging is knowledge. And even deeper than that, no. Now, if you would, keep your place here in the book of Titus and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Keep your pens handy. Romans chapter 3. And when you get to verse 3, uh, chapter 3, excuse me, then find verse 20. And I'll give everyone time to turn there. I like watching y'all's pages turn and give everyone a chance to get there so you can read along. Romans chapter 3. I still hear them pages turning. Alright, in verse 20, look with me there. It says, therefore, Paul says, by the deeds of the law, or by doing the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the, here's our root word for acknowledging, knowledge of sin. Underscore the word knowledge in that verse. And when you underscore the word knowledge, you might want to write out in your margin a little note and refer it back to Titus 1.1. 
Paul says, by doing the, the deeds of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified in God's sight because by the law, Paul says, is the knowledge of sin. When we believe God's law, the Ten Commandments, it gives us the knowledge of our sin. When we read, for example, that thou shalt not steal, then we know that we have sinned by stealing. When we read that we should not covet, then we know that we have sinned by being envious of what other people have. By acknowledging the truth of the law, we have the knowledge of our sin. By the way, it's the same Greek word, knowledge here, in Romans 3.20 that we have here in Titus 1.1. Same Greek word. By acknowledging the truth of the law, we gain the knowledge of our sin. Uh, and, and, and when we acknowledge the truth of the law, once again, it gives us a knowledge of our sin. Even so, when we acknowledge the truth of the gospel, it gives us a knowledge of forgiveness and eternal life. You see how that works? The acknowledging of the truth. I appreciate how Paul is wording this, so I'd like to elaborate a little more uh, and make sure that everybody understands it. Paul said the faith of God's elect is the acknowledging of the truth. To believe something we hear is for us to acknowledge that what we just heard is true. Isn't that right? To believe something we hear is for us to acknowledge that what we just heard is true. Now listen to how the Apostle Paul described the Ephesians' salvation when they acknowledged the truth of the gospel after they heard it. After declaring his own faith in Jesus in Ephesians 1.13, the Apostle Paul told the Ephesians that Jesus was someone, quote, "...in whom ye also trusted." After that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed that truth, ye were sealed with the, that Holy Spirit of promise. So God's elect acknowledge the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them. The Ephesians heard the gospel and they acknowledged that it was true. Faith is our acknowledgement of the truth of Christ. The truth that God's elect acknowledge is that the gospel is God's redemptive plan. It's His holy scheme to remove our sin and to restore us back in all creation back to our original sinless and holy condition. So the truth that we acknowledge because of what I just explained, is that, look back in your text now in Titus 1.1, it's that which is after godliness. Now take your pens and underscore the word godliness. When we hear the word godliness, a lot of things may come to our mind, and some of the things that come to our mind will hinder our comprehension of this verse. We hear the word godliness, we may think of something that pleases the Lord and reflects His holy character. That would be true. But 
Mark this down. Godliness will never be experienced on this earth apart from the gospel. It can't be. Godliness will never be experienced on this earth apart from the gospel. Only through the redemptive work of Christ can the holiness of God become the holiness in man. We'll say it again. Only through the redemptive work of Christ can the holiness of God become the holiness in man. And it is in this context that we are to understand the word godliness in our text today. Godliness here is talking about God's holy scheme to remove all unholiness from man and from the creation that has been placed under man's authority and then to restore both man and creation back to the holiness of God as they were first created. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3.16, please. 1 Timothy chapter 3.16. There's some powerful verses in Scripture, and they a lot of them have 3.16 in them. All scriptures given by inspiration is one of them, and this is uh, John 3.16 is one of them. This is the third one. 1 Timothy 3.16. If you're in Titus, it's real easy. Uh, just uh, take turn two books to your left. You'll be in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 3.16. Now watch how Paul uses this same word in another pastoral epistle. The same word godliness. Okay, Watch how, how Paul uses this same word as he's writing... To Timothy, in another pastoral epistle, Paul said, look with me in 1 Timothy 3.16. He says, and without controversy, great is the mystery of, underscore the word, godliness. And then right out next to it, Titus 1.1. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And now he's going to explain what godliness is in this context. Paul said, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And now here he goes. He says, God was manifest in the flesh. This is what godliness is, you understand. Godliness is that God was manifest in the flesh. He was justified in the spirit. He was seen of angels. He was preached unto the Gentiles. He was believed on in the world. And then he was received up in the glory. That's godliness. Makes sense. Why is all that godliness? Because once again, apart from the gospel, the holiness of God will never become the holiness in man. It has to have God being manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit by obeying the law, seen of angels, believed on the world, died, buried, and received back up into glory again before godliness can ever be experienced in this world. That's God's holy scheme to take ungodliness, put it away, and restore godliness from heaven back to earth again. God came in the flesh, being born of a virgin, in the person of Jesus Christ, he was then justified in the, in the Spirit, having perfectly obeyed the law of God. He was then seen of angels. The word angels is messengers. 
We were witnesses, the apostle said. That which we have heard, that which we have looked upon, that which we have handled the word of life, declare we unto you. So they, he was seen of messengers, his apostles, like the apostle Paul. And having been seen of them, he was then preached unto the Gentiles. That means preached unto the nations when Jesus told the messengers, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And when he was preached, many of those Gentiles acknowledged the truth of what they heard, the acknowledging of the truth. Believing on Jesus as their Savior, who was received up into glory, there to intercede on our behalf. This is what God did for us. It was God's holy scheme. It was God's redemption plan to redeem sinners and restore us back to the way we were intended to be. And Paul called it the mystery of godliness. Because in the Old Testament, it was somewhat of a mystery of how God would actually accomplish this. We had shadows. But now that Jesus has come and died for us and risen again, the mystery is solved. Paul has preached the gospel to us. And we, the elect of God, Gladly acknowledge that it is true. And with that, we'll go ahead and close this morning. And Lord willing, take back up in verse 2 next week. What a powerful introduction Paul is giving us here in his greeting to Timothy. I can't wait to get into, chapter, into verse 2. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Savior, then I'd like to invite you to meet with me or Brother Shepherd after church. Let us get with you. And you know what we'll do? We'll share God's holy scheme with you. We'll tell you exactly what's in God's redemptive plan. Exactly what he has done in Christ and what he's going to do when Christ comes again. will tell you how you can be delivered from the destruction of this world and restored back to the way God intended for you to be. Where you can overcome death and live forever through the gospel. And by acknowledging the truth of what you hear, accepting Christ as your Savior... You too will be God's elect. In every wonderful thing that we read here and that we get so excited about, it will be yours as well. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for all you've done. We thank you, Father, for godliness. We thank you that it's a mystery no more. You were manifested in the flesh. You were justified in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God came down upon your Son. And being filled with the Spirit, He entered into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. 
And he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, justified in the Spirit. He was seen, Lord, of many witnesses who then preached him to the world. And many, including us, believe on his name. We acknowledge, Lord, that what you have told us about Jesus in your word is the truth. And we thank you for that. Help us, Lord, as we move on into the next verse next week. Help us to tie the truths together. And give us, I pray, a solid understanding of your word. We may lay it up in our hearts. Rejoice and be the bondservants to God, being free from the miry clay. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen.